the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And we are here every weekday at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions. Now, the phones were quiet yesterday. Unusual show where there were no calls, so we need your phone calls today. You can call 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free if you're outside the local area by calling 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, at 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvaryessay.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. App, especially because the streets are wet today. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just one button, call now, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Now, I know this can be a really good show today, and the reason I know it is because we had standing room only in my office studio here. Uh, Eleven kids came in to pray. Now, I'm not sure whether they're motivated more by wanting the show to be good or the M&Ms that they get afterwards. But nevertheless, there were 11 kids in here praying for this program, so that means they were praying for you. One more time, 340-9585. We'll get right to the questions because we don't have anything going on tonight. Here is a question from Jack from our mobile app. He says, I saw a post on Facebook this morning from a gentleman by the name of Jordan Riley. It said, warning, Bethel, music, Jesus, culture, and Hillsong United are nothing more than Trojan horses used to get their heresy inside our churches. What's this all about? Jack, two things. One, ignore everything you read on Facebook. I don't know who Jordan Riley is. I have no idea, but there's no value in this kind of silliness. Christians, we have a Bible. We don't need to be warned. Now, let me say very straightforwardly that Bethel Church is a horrible church. And um, their music side, Jesus Culture, Hillsong United, the churches that they're connected with aren't great churches. But believe me, nobody's so organized that we've got this long-term plot to, to sneak in a back door by using music. So just keep your Bibles open. And you're going to be protected against false teaching. Bethel is a false teaching church. Lots and lots of damage is being done to the people who are going there. Um, the music that they've uh, been so successful with, um, it's a lot of the same kind of nonsense. That doesn't mean every song is bad. Uh, certainly not every hill song is bad. Um, hill song for a long time was the primary supplier of most of the contemporary Christian music. And we need to look at every song for the lyric content and make a decision whether or not it's consistent with the Word of God and decide whether to use it or not. But, Jack, please, don't waste a minute on Facebook. 
Now, this isn't for you, Jack. This is for everybody in the audience. Here's my challenge to all of you. Think about, just take the last three days. Think about the time you spent on Facebook or other social media platforms. And then ask yourself honestly, how much better off would you have been had all of that time been spent in the Word of God instead of on Facebook? I know I'm not going to change the culture. I know that Facebook and similar platforms are here to stay. But why do we let ourselves get dragged into this kind of nonsense? If uh, you want to reply to Jordan Riley, tell him not to contact you again. 340-9585, Linda called, and she wants to know, what is my view on evolutionary creationism? Uh, Linda, um, it's impossible that God used evolution to, to create what we now have. Uh, so my view is not um, appreciative of evolutionary creationism. In the beginning, God. That's all we have to believe. Um, if we do that one thing, then we've got a leg up on what the Word is trying to communicate to us. So uh, God did not use evolution as a means of creating uh, the human race. That's as clear as I can be, Linda. Uh, Frank wants to know, Pastor Ron, why did Jesus say that his father was greater than he was if they are both God? Well, Frank, you're right. They are both God. And Jesus did say his father was greater than he was. Now, here's the reason why. Jesus, when he walked this earth, never had an independent thought. Not one. I only do what I see my father do. I only say what I hear my father say. Jesus was a man on a mission, and his mission was to reveal the person of God the Father, the exact representation, the mirror image of the Father. That's what Jesus came to do. No man can approach God. He lives in unapproachable light. If we saw God, we would die. Jesus came to reveal him in a way that allows us to see him and know who he is. You know, it's interesting, uh, Frank, if you go back through the Old Testament, there are um, um, many appearances, several appearances of, of Jesus in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. There's always a definite article. We always know it's Jesus because they get worshipped. Um, that angel gets worshipped, uh, and Jesus appeared. The only way we could ever, Isaiah saw Jesus in that chapter 6 vision uh, that that celebrated his calling uh, as a prophet. So it's very important we understand that we can't see God. That's why Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. He took on human form so that we could see him. Now, the fact that he was greater than Father, Jesus said, only means that Jesus emptied himself, Philippians chapter 2, and took on the form of a servant, a human being, suffered and died, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. And so what that means is that Jesus was always under the authority of his Father in heaven. He was always under the authority. Not because he had to be. Not because he was lesser than God. In fact, that Philippians 2 passage says he didn't let equality with God or consider equality with God something to be grasped. He had it, but he let it go. So his father was greater only in the sense of authority. Jesus walking this earth was under his authority. It's a great lesson for us because he was willing to do that though he was equal to God, equal with God. Should we not all understand Jesus is greater than we are? Now we understand that intellectually, but if we understand that spiritually, if we understand that in our heart, then what we learn is that Jesus is in charge. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things I say? We don't have an answer for that question. So Jesus' Father was greater in authority because Jesus willingly submitted to that authority. But it in no way lessens the fact that Jesus was completely God and equal with and to God. Jesus is described out of his own mouth is the Alpha and the Omega. In the Old Testament, God is described as the Alpha and the Omega, the Ancient of Days. 
So Frank, that's why he said his father was greater. It was only in terms of his ministry here on earth where he was completely subjected and submitted to the will of his father in heaven. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, our Jesus could say, if there's any way this cup can pass for me, nevertheless, thy will, not my will, be done. Frank, great lessons for us in terms of authority. You know, I tell our church here all the time as I'm getting ready to look at another question here. Uh, I tell our church all the time that Jesus never asks us to do something that he hasn't first done for us as an example. So if we understand that, then we're going to be on really solid ground. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's Jennifer. My friend says she is an ex-Christian. I don't understand what she means. Is there such a thing? Um, Jennifer, I can tell you what your friend means. Uh, she means that she once professed faith in Christ, but now evidently she knows better or evidently she's come up with something else. But the truth is there's no such thing as an ex-Christian. You are either born again or you're not. And even when we're born again and we kind of fall away into sin, we Christians have a polite word for that. We call it backsliding when it's just sin and rebellion. But if you're saved, you're really saved. Ephesians chapter 1 says that the minute we are born again, a, the Holy Spirit is given to us as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And that word guarantee is really important there, Jennifer, because that means God is the one who's guaranteeing that we're going to make it to the end. He will begin a good work in us. We'll be faithful to complete it. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. So if we're really saved, God knows that. And we're always going to be saved. What your friend means is that she tried Jesus and it didn't work for her. It didn't accomplish the results that she wanted. And so now, like fickle humans can be, she's on to something else. So there's no such thing as an ex-Christian. What it means is they never really were. In 1 John chapter 2, John says, They, the false teachers, they went out from us to prove they were never part of us. And while there was a time when they looked every bit a part of the Christian community. But people fall away. People claim conversion without having really changed, without having their heart converted. But rest assured, Jennifer, every single person who's truly born again is going to make it in the end to heaven. And God knows who every one of them is. You know, Jennifer, one of the real advantages of having been around for a long time. This is our 24th year here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. I've seen people walk out of here, their lives so messed up, you're thinking, wow, I guess they were never really saved, or, or thinking, boy, they, they blew it so bad, they're never coming back. And a year or two or three or ten goes by, and God comes alongside them and brings them back. And you know, they were always really his. Jesus said, I haven't lost one that you've given me. He still hasn't lost any real believer. So Jennifer, don't listen to so much what people say. Watch the kind of life they live. Jesus said, you'll know those who are his by our fruit. And I always treat people who are living like unbelievers as though they really are. And I treat Christians, people living like Christ, I treat them like believers. So pray for your friend. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We have a caller, Jim in San Antonio. Are there gaps in Jesus' genealogies? Is that true? If not, would you elaborate on that point? Jim, I'm not looking at my notes uh, for, for this right now. So yeah, there are some gaps 
um, um, but but all of the genealogies in the Bible do that. We what we have is the record of Jesus' genealogies. One from the perspective of his mother, the other uh, from the perspective of his stepfather Joseph. And what we have is references in some cases to ancestors. Uh, if you don't mind, maybe tune in tomorrow's program. Uh, I'll drag out my notes. It's one of the one of the places where I need to look at my notes because there's uh, so much information in there but yeah there are a couple gaps not significant gaps they're not trying to hide anything at all uh, it's just a matter of, of one of them goes all the way back to Adam and the other one of course does not so I'll get more information on that for you uh, by tomorrow's program when I can call up my, my notes from those two passages I have them uh, we're in the Gospel of Luke and that's where one of them is Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Becky. Uh, she says, "I can't understand why God would send someone to hell simply for believing in a different religion. How is that fair?" Becky, couple of things. Um, as humans, we're responsible. Um, that that inner witness of God is 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 instinctive within all of us. We all know that there's something out there greater than we are. We all can look at creation, Paul says in his letter to the Romans. Creation declares the glory of God. The psalmist writes day after day, they pour forth speech. There's no nation or language where they're not understood. So we're all accountable. We have a conscience, again, Romans says that we have a conscience that has been given us by God which which identifies right versus wrong. We know when we're doing something wrong. So we have to deal with those ways that God has revealed himself to us. Now, in your case, when somebody belongs to another religion and they claim to know about God and have a relationship with God, or they worship or serve something they call God, well, every single one of us is accountable to find out if the God that we serve is truly God. Let me use Abraham, Becky, as an example for you. Abraham, we know, came from an idol-worshipping family. He himself, along with Sarai, uh, were idol worshippers. That would mean they would go out and they would worship idols that they'd carved out of stone or, or out of, made out of wood with their own hands. And Abraham, when he was a Brahm, evidently was at a point where he would go into the idol room and they would have a separate room, separate place that they would go. They would offer sacrifices, not typically living sacrifices, but, but sacrifices nonetheless. And they would offer them to these idols. And at one point... Abraham got to the place where he thought, well, this is silly. I made these things. How could these things be God? And yet it's so hard to challenge what you've been raised to believe in. So here's what I think happened. I think one day Abraham got to the point where he said, God, if you're real, I need to know who you are. Because these rocks, these pieces of wood, they can't be God. And all we have to do is go into the Genesis account beginning in chapter 12. And we find out that he encountered the living God. Finally, a God spoke to him. But this was a God who knew his name. Now, let me apply that to a Muslim or a Buddhist or any other religion, Becky. If someone calls Allah God or Buddha is God, if you're a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon and you think you know who God is, it's our responsibility to prove whether or not the God we worship really is God. And so we're actually more accountable. Can you imagine what that sort of an interview will be like on the day when you stand before Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess? Well, I worshiped God. Jesus would say, I'm God. You didn't worship me. But I worship the God of my fathers. I worship the God that I was always raised to believe in. Jesus would say, but he's not God. I'm God. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And it, 
it'll never be enough to say, well, well, I just trusted in what I was taught. Or I just believed that all gods were sort of the same. Jesus' response will be, depart from me, I never knew you. So when people take this kind of a, an approach, Becky, it's not fair. Just because someone was born somewhere else or worshipped a different religion. We're trying to avoid our personal responsibility to seek the truth. And if we don't seek the truth, that's never on God, that's always on us. I'll go one step farther, Becky. I told you we're all accountable. The Bible says, Jesus speaking in John chapter 3, that we're condemned when we're born. It's hard to take sometimes. You look at a brand new baby and they smell so good, they're so cute, their skin's so soft. And then you think, well, that's a condemned sinner? Yeah. We're born with the sin nature. We inherited it from Adam, our forefather. So the truth is, apart from God's intervention, we're all condemned forever and ever. So what we've got to do is honestly and diligently find out what's true. If Jesus really is God, as he claims to be, there would be proof of it. Certainly the fulfillment of prophecies are proof. All the miracles that he did while he was here, all that proves that he's God. But the exclamation point, Becky, is that when he died for your sins and mine, he didn't stay dead. And that simple truth is easy to prove. The evidence is absolutely overwhelming. A Muslim will never find Muhammad. No other religious leader has ever died and rose again. Only Jesus, and it can be proven. So he made it really easy for us. What I don't understand is why any of us get to go to heaven. I'm just glad that we do. So, Becky, be careful with your charges that God's not fair. Only Jesus died for your sins. Only Jesus gave us his righteousness and perfection. Only Jesus. We're in about, inside about three minutes for the program. We'd love to have your live calls on the second half of the program. Here's a question from Bruce. He asks, why doesn't the Bible tell us how the earth was created? If it did, we could more easily believe. Well, Bruce, the Bible does tell us how the earth was created. In the beginning, God, if you're talking about what manner of creation he used, he made everything from nothing. So I think that's pretty specific. I think the Bible does tell us how God created not only the earth, but how he created you and how he created me. Started with one man and one woman, both of them made by the very hand of God himself. The rest of us created as a result of the process of multiplying and being fruitful. So the Bible does tell us in the beginning, God, he said, let there be light. And there was light. Jesus, we're told, not only made all things, but he's currently the active agent in holding all things together. I don't know why that's difficult for you to understand, Bruce. Now, I understand that maybe you don't believe it, but if you don't believe it, it's because you haven't checked it out. So the Bible was made, or the, the earth was made in six days, or everything on the earth was made in six days. The account's not hard to understand, it's just hard if we're reading it through the filter of the evolutionary training or the, the big bang training that we've had, or the primordial ooze that people talk about that just exploded and suddenly everything was made. I gotta tell you, 
I know Stephen Hawking was a brilliant, brilliant man, but how can anybody believe that? How can anybody believe that? And I've had somebody say, well, who are you to question Stephen Hawking? Well, today he knows the truth. He wasn't as smart as he wanted us to believe he is, or was. So Bruce, the Bible does tell us, in the beginning, God, if you can believe those first four words of the Bible, the rest of it ought to be pretty straightforward to you. Now, God doesn't defend himself. There's no chapter in the Bible comparing God, who was there, obviously, in creation, with all the theories that were presented. Job asked the same questions. Why is this happening? This isn't fair. And God basically said, were you there when I stretched out the heavens? Were you there? And the answer is no. Then what God was very nicely and lovingly telling him was then shut up. Bruce, you got a decision to make. Do you believe Genesis 1 and 2? If you do, you'll have no more questions. We've got 30 minutes left in the Tuesday edition of the program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll see you on the other side of the break. Back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back. That two minutes went really, really fast. I was almost not ready. Here is a question from our email inbox from Lori. She says, in Luke 17, 20 through 37, Jesus was answering his disciples' questions about when will the kingdom of God come. In verses 28 to 30, Jesus used the example of Sodom and how people went about their daily business, eating, drinking, buying and selling, farming and building, until the morning lot left Sodom. Then fire and burning sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. My question is, is there anything significant about Lot in the phrase, until Lot left Sodom? Does Lot represent the church being raptured? I think you're on to something there, Lori. I'll explain more in a moment. You know, um, I take great comfort in the fact that Jesus' disciples were a lot like we are. They looked around and saw the things that were going on uh, in this world, they saw the pain. They they could they were walking with Jesus, who who was always the object of a murder plot. And I think there were just times when they couldn't wait for the kingdom of God. Now, they didn't understand the rapture the way you and I understand it. The disciples didn't. Now, obviously, after they got saved, uh, born again, Acts chapter two. Obviously, they. Um, they understood it then and have communicated it to us in the Word. Um, but I think it's just uh, our, our instinct, how much longer, O oh Lord? And Jesus told them, said, look around. You see people eating and drinking and buying and selling, farming and building. In other words, life just goes on. And we get absorbed in the life around us. And we get our eyes off heaven. Now, the question about Lot is really important. In, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, it says, And he rescued Lot. This would be the destroying angels in Sodom. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who is distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them uh, day after day was tormented, vexed, the King James says, um, in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw around him. You know, we look at Lot's life, and, and we unless, unless Peter told us this, we wouldn't know that he was righteous. 
we would look at Lot like a backsliding, compromised Christian. His witness was so compromised that he couldn't even save his sons-in-law or his wife. He'd lost all credibility, and he says, well, God's here. This can be true. We've got to get out of here. His wife looked back. You know the story. His sons-in-law wouldn't come. Only his daughters followed. And, and Lot was reluctant to leave even himself. That's when the angels snatched him. And in that story, uh, I'll use the Greek word that the, the Septuagint uses. And translating, it's, a, it's the word harpazo. He snatched him away. The angel did. And here's why he did it. He did it because the angel said, we cannot do anything. Remember, they're destroying angels. They came here to destroy we cannot do anything until you're out of here. And they literally took him by the hand and snatched him away. Why couldn't they do anything? Because it was a righteous man. And God's wrath, which fell on Sodom and Gomorrah, God's wrath could not fall until the righteous had departed. Well, the picture there is so important to us because God's wrath is coming again. We call it the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's distress or Jacob's trouble in the Old Testament. But it's always a reference to that period of time, the 70th week of Daniel, where God is going to pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. We who have been made righteous by Christ can't be here when that happens. You know, people like to argue about pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib raptures of the church. But this is the one issue that settles it once and for all. How could the righteous God of all the earth judge the wicked with the righteous? The answer was he couldn't. So yes, Lot had to be raptured. So that's really an important thing that you're on to there, Lori. And hold on to it. Now there's a whole bunch of, of uh, other, not only proof text, but Old Testament illustrations. Let me give you a suggestion, Lori. You can go to our website, calvaryessay.com. And go to the book of Revelation, chapter 4, the very first study I always do. We've taught Revelation three times here uh, in, in our years, and probably I'll teach it one more time uh, before it's time for me to go see Jesus. But the idea here is that at chapter 4, that first teaching, I talk only about the rapture. I just do the one verse, and it's just about the rapture. And I use examples from the Old Testament. I use the passages from the New Testament. Uh, and the, the evidence, based on God's character, is overwhelming that we have to be taken away from here. We have to be taken away from here before God's wrath is poured out. How could God pour out wrath on us if, in fact, he's pleased with us, not angry with us? So, Lori, I hope that'll help you. Revelation chapter 4, the very first study. From our mobile app from Richard. As Christians or non-Christians, we all know that our life will come to an end someday. Are our days numbered by God? Yes, Richard, they are. Um, but only in the sense that God knows when our last day is going to be. Now, there's one interesting uh, exception to that. And that's when the good king, Hezekiah, was going to die. He was a prophet. Was sent to Hezekiah, tell him that the, the illness that you're suffering from, you're going to die from. And he didn't have a son and heir, and he begged God, and God gave him 15 more years. God knew that as well. But Richard, God knows exactly when my last day on earth is going to be. Um, I hope that it's going to be the rapture of the church, but regardless, he knows exactly when that day is, but he didn't cause it to be that day. That's what we need to understand. God's foreknowledge doesn't mean he causes those things to happen. It just means that he knows those things are going to happen. A person's days are numbered, Job chapter 14, verse 5. 
Uh, a person's days are determined, rather, you've decreed the number of his months and set time that limits that he cannot exceed. Psalm 139, verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So God knows in advance all those days. And yes, all we have to do, because we don't know that day, is be sure we're walking with Jesus on that day. And the only way that we can be sure is to walk with him every day. Good question, Richard. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585. This is a tough question. Anonymous. How can I be sure I'm hearing God instead of just hearing what I want? Um, Anonymous, you know what? You can't unless you're in the Word, unless your heart is right with God, unless you're with Jesus. Just be with Jesus. And then you're going to hear the Lord. I think sometimes we have a wrong picture of God that makes this a difficult concept for us. You know, we think God is going to be hard with us or, or, or he's not going to give us what we want. And I think when the Lord speaks to our heart and, and, and we confirm it through his word, I think sometimes we think, well, well I just, that just must be me. I can't believe God's going to let me do what I want. He wants you to do that. He puts those desires in your heart. David writes, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean that he'll give you all those new things you want, but it means that the desires that are in there have been placed there by God. He really wants to answer our prayers. So don't be surprised when God wants to just bless you. That's who he is. It's what he does. But there's also an element of faith here. When the Lord speaks to my heart, and there are times when he's spoken so clearly to my heart that I know beyond any doubt whatsoever. But there are many, many more times anonymous where I think I'm hearing from the Lord, but I sort of have to file that away to find out if it's true in those areas where we can't be sure. Now, I've got a pretty good grasp on the Word of God. So I know that if what I want isn't consistent with the Word of God, God's not going to give it to me. So I think one of the things that you can do is know the word so that when God is speaking to your heart about something, and again, we always have to check that out. The primary way God speaks to any of us is in his word. But it's also true that he'll speak to your heart because he wants to test you. He wants to, to exercise your faith. So if what you think you hear is not in contradiction to the word, if your walk with Jesus is right, just this last Sunday in Luke chapter 6, I taught um, before you go speck hunting in somebody else's eye, first take the beam or the log out of your own eye. If you've done that, Second Corinthians 13, Paul tells us to examine ourselves daily to see whether or not we're in the faith. If we've done that, then the chances are really good that what you heard, you heard from God. Now, let me make it a little more difficult for you, Anonymous. There are some things that I know I've heard from God. In fact, he spoke one of those things to me just yesterday. Um, but some of those things he's telling me now, but they'll come to fruition later. You know, a week goes by, he tells me something. A week goes by, and it hasn't happened. A month goes by, it hasn't happened. Sometimes years go by. And it hasn't happened. I can't discount what I know the Lord spoke to my heart. So I just have to hold on to it. Understanding that God's timing is perfect. I'll give you a great example of this, this principle. Years ago, um, 17 years ago now, a little more than 17 years, um, the Lord spoke to my heart about our medical clinic. He let me know that he was going to take care of the people in our church and many others. He wanted to show them how much he loved them. I had to hold on to that promise for 12 years before we broke ground at Malta Medical. For 12 years, it didn't look like I heard correctly from the Lord. And yet, 
I put the vision out there. People were praying. And yet 12 years goes by and we break ground on Multimedical. And the result now, of course, is that we've seen more than 20,000 patients in the subsequent five-plus years that we've been open. And virtually every day somebody gets saved. What a wonderful ministry, but I could have just, just thrown it away because it took so long to happen. Paula, in praying for me, believed that God was going to save me. But she prayed for me for 13 years. So know the word. Make sure your heart's right with God. And when he says something that you want to hear, treasure it in your heart and just wait for the hand of God to move. Anonymous in something that's so general and difficult to explain, that's as well as I can do. Thanks. I'll be praying for you. Here is another anonymous question, excuse me. If a Christian is going to heaven anyway, why would we resist temptation? It seems like we can have some fun and still get to heaven. Uh, Anonymous, if you're talking about yourself, uh, a Christian, a real Christian could never ask that question. What shall we say then? Paul writes to the church at Rome, shall we go on sinning? And the response was because where sin abounds, grace all the more abounds. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? I love the King James. It says, God forbid. In other words, no, God forbids it. So here's the thing you got to understand. To be a Christian means we change. To be a Christian means we we love Him and we put His desires ahead of our own. Being a Christian is not some religious exercise. It's not answering an altar call. It's not getting baptized. Being a Christian is being changed. If anyone is in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. Second Corinthians 5.17, a verse all of us are familiar with. What it means is the old you who wants to sin and get away with it is dead. And just the way you ask this question, Anonymous, what it indicates is that the old you is still alive. Nobody who really loves Jesus could ask this question. When we belong to him, our overarching drive is to please him. We mess up because we're flesh, we're humans. But our heart of hearts is to please him, to put a smile on his face. And anybody who could think for a moment they're a Christian and still want to get away with sin just demonstrates they don't really know him at all. We're not saved by what we say. We're saved by who we are and who Jesus has made us. So please, Anonymous, reconsider your priorities. Earlier, to an earlier question, I said, Paul said to examine our faith, our hearts, to see whether or not we're in the faith. You need to do that. Because this simply isn't a question that a real Christian could ask. I want you in heaven. Jesus wants you in heaven. But if you still just want to have some fun and so get heaven, what you've got is an eternal life insurance policy that's never going to get paid. You have to repent. Turn from sin. Turn to Jesus. And then let the times of refreshing come upon you. Jesus has been saving people just like you from the very beginning of the church. And I'm hoping that you'll say yes to him. Here is... Oh, don't have something here. I thought I had a question or a caller, but I don't see it on my screen. 
340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is our next question from James. Oh, here's the question I've got. It's not a call. It's a question that was sent in. Anonymous, when others who identify as transgender use names that are associated with their opposite gender, what should we as Christians do? Anonymous had a similar question, I think, last week. And what I said then is true, I think, still. I, I, I'll call anybody by whatever name they want to be called by. But I will not refer to a biological male as a woman because he feels like a woman. So if, if a, a man dressed up like a woman comes in and says, uh, my name is Catherine, uh, I would say, Catherine, welcome to Calvert Chapel. God bless you. I'm glad that you're here. But if I was, if it was demanded of me to refer to him in a female sense, then I would simply say I couldn't do that. Now, these kind of things are going to happen with increasing frequency in the church. So we've got to decide who do we believe. You see, I want to help people that come into Calvert Chapel. That's the reason we do this radio program. I want to give some sense of clarity and bring logic of, of let us use our brains a, a little bit. And the fact that somebody identifies as a gender that is different than the one they were born with doesn't change the fact that biologically their DNA uh, is still what it was when they were born. You can do all the surgery you want to do, but your DNA still is the gender you were born with. One of the things I read, and I'll get a source if anybody wants it, I don't have it off the top of my head, but I read this a couple of months ago, that one of the problems that uh, is now cropping up with uh, reassignment surgery, male to female, is that they they typically, they don't remove the, the prostate. And we're having transgendered women coming with prostate cancer. A woman can't, a biological woman can't have a prostate cancer because they don't have a prostate. That's just one of the things. So, anonymous, that's what I do. I'll call anybody by any name they want to be called. But I won't compromise uh, my God and what the Word says is true and help them identify. I want to solve their problems and helping them Believe the lie isn't going to help. Let me get back to the question that I started. James said, Does God expect me to give up my old friends since I got saved? Uh, no, James, he, God doesn't expect you to give up your old friends. God expects you to witness to them. They may give up you, but God doesn't want you to give them up. What he wants you to do is be a light with your old friends. Now, I had this problem, and probably every believer ever has had this problem. You get saved, you meet Jesus, you're excited, you want them to be excited for you, and you want them to believe what you believe so they can go to heaven too. And the minute you go tell them about Jesus, I met Jesus. Oh, you're not one of those, are you? And and I used to say, "Well, well, I don't know what you mean, one of those. I'm a Christian now. I met Jesus. And I want to tell you about Jesus. See what he's done for me. He's changed me. And and truthfully, James, a bunch of my old friends gave me up for sure. I didn't give them up. They gave me up. Now, I think in the context that you mean this question, uh, does it mean you can go hang out with them while they're doing bad stuff? The answer is no. A Christian doesn't want to do those things. We don't hang around with them just because they're your old buds if what they're going to do is spend their time doing sinful things. Talking about things that you have no interest in. Remember, the old is gone, the new has come. So yeah, be around your friends, witness to your friends, and let them decide whether they're going to quit you or not. And then pray for them. But truthfully, truthfully, James, God loves them. He wants them saved. And you're his man at the moment. So represent See what God will do. 
this happens in families, especially James, all the time. You know, young man or woman come home saved and tell their, their parents and their siblings about Jesus. And nobody, oh, you think you're all that now. I, I know what you're like. And yeah, you, you know what I used to be like. But as they keep watching, and believe me, they keep watching, as their life seems to fall apart, as the emptiness in their heart is illuminated by the fullness of your heart, what happens is that God begins to change them, and then they come to you. But never compromise your witness just for friends or just for family members. It's always Jesus all the time. James, I've actually had family members tell me, um, look, I don't want to talk about Jesus anymore. And the only response I can have is, well, then don't invite me. Because if I'm there, Jesus is coming with me, and we're going to talk about Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it? They expect that you would honor their desire, but they have no concerns at all about honoring your heart and your life. So give up the old things you and your friends did, but never give up nor give up on your old friends. Um, Connie, Connie, I'll get to your question more. I don't have time now to answer it. Where are we? We're about one minute. Nope. Uh, here's one from Wes I can do. My question is about demon possession. Can Christians be possessed? If so, what do we do? Wes, Christians cannot be possessed by demons, no matter what bad teaching churches tell you. We cannot be possessed by demons. There's no demon of lust. There's no demon of cancer. There's no demon of drunkenness. There's no demon of... If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And he will not share your space with that which is intended to destroy you. So no, we cannot be demon-possessed. Now, there are professing Christians who aren't real Christians who can be demon-possessed but not real questions. Wes, I hope that helps. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Um, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. I have the privilege of pastoring Calvary Chapel of San Antonio for now into our 24th year. It's amazing what God will do if you give Him your heart. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back on the Wednesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. See you tomorrow. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.